Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I sit down with Steve Bayshore, Director of Historic Trades at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, we are going to be talking a little bit about flour and, and, and the uh, estate's grist mill operations, but then we're going to move on to the main event, and we're going to talk about whiskey and uh, George Washington's distillery and uh, Mount Vernon's efforts to uh, recreate George Washington's whiskey. Uh, if you are so inclined, we have even added a link on this episode page uh, that will take you right to where you, yourself, in the comfort of your own home, uh, can in fact purchase some of George Washington's whiskey. Uh, obviously, we just ask that you be over 21 years old. And now on to my conversation with Steve Bayshore. Hey, Steve. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I guess to start off with, um, you know, would you just give us an idea of sort of your background and, and how did how did you become uh, one of the nation's leading expert, experts in historic whiskey? Uh, I, I don't know if I could qualify <laughs> that, that I'm one of the leading experts, but I've, I've been fortunate to learn a lot about it the last 10, 11 years here at Mount Vernon. And I came to Mount Vernon really through historic milling um, 25 years ago. This year, I actually started working at my first historic mill and apprenticed to the miller there and learned how to run water-powered machinery and grind grain. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a few years at that mill, which was a county park system, led me to another historic site, Stratford Hall, which is the really an 18th century house. So the people think of it as Robert E. Lee's birthplace, which it was, but he only lived there three and a half years. So the family of the Lees during the American Revolution was a critical family uh, to our revolutionary efforts. And so that house was built in the 1730s. And they had a water mill, and so uh, it was a restored mill that I operated and actually helped uh, a millwright restore it again while I was there. So through that experience of learning about grain, when the position opened up here at Mount Vernon in 2007, and they were restoring the distillery, and the grist mill was already up and running, they needed somebody to manage that site, and uh, I applied and was fortunate enough to get that. But I think... I never would have uh, thought years ago I would end up in this sort of field. I have a history degree and love history, mm -hmm. but uh, the practical living history part of it's been my major, major endeavor. Nice. Well, I guess uh, just like for, for Washington or even the the whiskey process in general, right? Let's uh, let's just even start with uh, you know the, the product that needs to go into it. So, could you talk to us a little bit? Uh, just to start with about milling and and especially historic milling. It's an interesting topic because uh, in the history of mills, there have been two ways to grind grain over all these centuries. One was by stones or pounding or grinding mm -hmm. in some manner, and then by rolls, which the modern mill is a roller mill, which became around in the 18th, 19th century. So what we're reflecting in Washington's time is uh, you know Virginia milling in the 18th century, which were there were windmills here. People forget that, but most of it was water power. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as a miller running a water mill, you have to really get to know the machine. In a lot of ways, uh, it's like a, the shade tree mechanic knows the way the thing's sounding, whether it's running right or not. And so when whatever mill you run, you learn pretty early whether it's running in the right manner or there's something wrong. And then you have to learn other technical things, too, in order to take care of it and run it properly. And then there's kind of a division between running for demonstrational purposes versus actually making food-grade product. And that's, I think that separation is important to, to note in that there are many people that can run mills and give tours, but to actually do production grinding mm -hmm. 
is another level. So I was fortunate enough to learn how to do that. And we do produce product in our grist mill that's sold to the public and used in our Mount Vernon Inn. Um, milling's an ancient tradition. It really goes back to 100 BC. It's the first reference to a water mill. And then in Roman historian Vitruvius is, describes in pretty great detail a vertical wheeled water mill with wooden cog gearing. And so it's just built upon that. Any industry or any endeavor gets better over the centuries. And so by the time of George Washington, water mills are fairly advanced, and some of them quite complex. And uh, what's neat about the trade is that you're, in a way, one fit, foot in a very basic, rudimentary machine, but there's aspects of it that are more highly technical, and, and the skill set to run them is technical. So I love the fact that it's got marries both things. And, you know, if you find something you love, you want to do more of it. And I was really fortunate when I was younger that I stumbled into mills. And um, my mentor was an uh, English millwright who built mills. And Derek Ogden is his name, and he uh, worked on two of the mills that I work, was working at. And once I met him, I knew I wanted to learn more from that man. And over a period of years, gained his trust where he took me overseas a couple times to look at mills in England that he had repaired in the 50s and 1960s, and along with other trips on the continent. So basically, he opened the door to all these old machines mm-hmm. and then listening to him talk about how he repaired them or what the importance of certain mills was. It just opened the whole subject up for me. So by the time I came to Mount Vernon, I, I was pretty well versed in milling. And uh, But there's always something new to learn, and that's another thing about any subject you love. If you peel back some of the layers, you realize, I'm just scratching the surface. I've got to dig a little deeper. And when you're around someone like a Derek Ogden, I saw him recently. He's 85. Uh, He'll mention something, and you've never even thought of it that way. And then you'll ask a question, and then he'll disappear into his office, and out comes a drawing that he did in 1960-something where he explains that to you. Mm -hmm. So that really lit a fire under me. And then the other thing is you have to keep doing it once Mm -hmm. you love the trade, any trade if you're a blacksmith or whatever you may do. Um, I have a lot of hours in mills, and that's really how I got better at it, was just being willing to spend the time. And I... Working at these historic sites is interesting, too, because I don't know if you do this with your work here, but I often try to picture this plantation. Now there's these neighborhoods and houses around here, and I drive down to the mill, and I think of what did this place look like in George Washington's Mm -hmm. time. And so being in the mill, you actually kind of get there Mm -hmm. because you're around these old old wooden parts and the machine's running as it did. So it takes you back in time, and I think that's part of why the visitors do love it. It's the fascination of a machine working, but I do think it provides a very unique window into the past when you're in a machine like that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite moments ever here at Mount Vernon uh, has been in your mill uh, when everything's on and it's running and and just all the machines are sort of, you know, all the parts are clattering away and you just kind of lose yourself in in the rhythm. Uh, Somehow the rhythmic portion, I think, kind of just helps you fall back in time a bit, I guess. It's almost soothing to me. Yeah. I mean, there are times we have to mill in the evening because of orders or whatever and mill on my own sometimes, and that's really a peaceful time just to be in there. And you think back to the men that ran the mill in the 18th century. There were many days like that on this plantation where uh, mm-hmm. the work was going on, and they were just attentive to that and in their space. And so it does uh, transport you. Yeah. Um, well, I guess talk to me about... Uh, milling in the 18th century, especially in in Virginia, and what is its sort of place in uh, colonial Virginia society? Well, it's twofold, really, because mills certainly had to be there for sustenance. Mm -hmm. So 
most landowners of a certain wealth level would have the capital to construct a water mill. So there's certainly these estate mills or plantation mills like George Washington had. And there's also independent mills, people that were uh, maybe owned some acreage around the mill, but their main job was that other farmers brought the grain to mm -hmm. them to be ground. So in the colonial context, if you look up and down the eastern seaboard, um, there's certain economic staples that you know, certain regions are better with grain than others, but some of the regions that became big milling regions were around New York, mm -hmm. Philadelphia, the Delaware region, and down into this part of Virginia. I haven't studied the southern uh, South Carolina, North Carolina as much, but all of them had markets to feed. And then the Caribbean markets opened mm -hmm. up really in the 1670s, I would say. And that is a point where the colonial mills in each of these colonies had enough uh, sustenance for the people there, so then they look for markets for their grain. And so early exports to the Caribbean start at that time, and of course they're bringing back rum and molasses, uh, but taking the flour barrels down there, mm -hmm. even cornmeal down there to be sold. So that's where that flour market starts to open up. And over the 18th century, that market grows so much that the American flour mill is really exporting an amazing amount of flour to the Caribbean, to southern Europe. Uh, we have some records here at Mount Vernon that indicate one shipment went to Italy. Mm -hmm and even Suriname. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think it started like any early market in these colonies to where we have to scratch a living, mm -hmm. as the millers say. We have to get feed our people. Okay, now we're doing that, and that, that led to the development of the market, which led to the rise of a lot of things around the flour industry, inclu including inspection mm -hmm. and other regimens. That you, know, you look at Henning's statutes of Virginia, you can see a lot of regulation around the milling trade. And so I think for any early colony in this country, I mean, you drive around a lot of these rural regions, and you'll see this mill road, that mill road. Mm -hmm. It's an indication of how many mills existed. Yeah. And some of them may just be that local market they're serving, but there were a number of entrepreneurial people that realized, okay, I can take this a step further. And then mills get bigger, more powerful, uh, able to grind more per day. So you have mills that can produce six, 7,000, 8,000 pounds of flour a day by the time of George Washington. So it's pretty interesting to think of the industrial base of America, when we think mm -hmm. of our industrial revolution as coming a little later, one could argue there was a pretty good development of American industry in the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, not just in flour, but in sawmills and in water-powered forges. You know, the iron industry in America was pretty well developed by the time George Washington's, you know, a fairly young man. So I, I think there's one could actually create the industrial map of Virginia, probably be amazed at how many of these water-powered sites were up and running. Yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the things the first time I ever went in our mill and, and got a good look at it. And we'll, we'll put a link to, uh, on, on this episode page, we'll put a link to a virtual tour of the, the mill that Mount Vernon has available. Um, but one of the things I, I was struck by is um, how, how modern it looks. And maybe this is just because I'm a nerdy historian, but it, it looks like what I... To, you know, it looks like 19th century machinery, but it's all made out of wood. Yeah, uh, which was just something that struck me, and, and that it's it's not even just wood; that it's it's wood that was hand fabricated. Mm -hmm. um, so someone was fabricating by ha hand uh, these incredibly precise parts. Uh, I mean, what sort of labor force is required, uh, an effort is required to build one of these mills in the 18th century? Well, this is where you get into the topic of the millwright. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've heard of shipwrights, wheelwrights. Yeah. Millwright today means machinists. They all work in metal and you know lathes and high-end type fabrication. But a millwright throughout the ages was a traditional builder 
of mills, mm-hmm. and they could be powered by animal power, wind power, or water power, sometimes human power. The first treadmill was human. And so for the millwright, these people are highly skilled in carpentry, but they also are engineers, and they know how to lay out all the gearing, all the ratios to make that mill do its function. And then they also know a lot about hydraulic power or the wind and how mm-hmm. to construct things. So if you look at records of a carpenter's wage in the 18th century, and then I've seen some millwright fees, it's quite astronomical sometimes what their fee is because they're highly skilled. And mm-hmm. if your mill's not built right, it's not going to work. And that's a huge investment lost. So over the centuries, these people passed this trade on. And I've done a little research in the northern neck of Virginia and uh, through some early records that are at Mesda. And I've been able to trace a number of millwrights. And you can see the apprentices who later take over as the millwrights. So those, the trades being developed as you would normally expect. But without a person with that skill level, none of these machines would have been built. Mm-hmm. And so they often had apprentices under them. And they sometimes had other workmen they hired. I guess when you're building a mill, you need masonry work. You, you need scaffolding. You need uh, the regular framing of the building. So it's amazing. Mount Vernon's mill in 1770 was built in 14 months. That's from the ground up. The restoration took four years. <laughs> and that's often the case. You know, yeah. we, we have to think of the fabric of the building in a different way. But uh, the key people were the millwrights. And uh, so I mentioned Derek Ogden earlier who uh, the the first day I met him was at the mill I worked at for the county and he was very charismatic he came in there and he repaired something on the water wheel shaft and so it was just obviously there was something there that attracted me like he knows so much I gotta I gotta Mm -hmm. tap into this and he's a hard customer to deal with because he's uh, exacting and he doesn't suffer fools well so it took a number of letters this is a long time ago so it wasn't email a lot of lot Mm -hmm. of letter writing and finally, I got a, a message back, why don't you come out to the workshop? And that was the invitation. And so just being around him in there and learning to work was instrumental in what I'm doing today. And, of course, him being English, if you tell him thanks, he'll just walk away because you don't talk about those things. <laughs> That's too much emotion involved in that. Yeah. But but he, uh, there's no doubt he's in a tradition of a long line of mill rights yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's fascinating. So for Washington, he hired a man named Mr. Ball, who was a millwright, who met with Washington, obviously, and they uh, decided where the mill should be built and how it would be built, what it would contain, and Ball then constructed that. And I believe in our records in the 17, early 1790s, when Washington installs the famous Oliver Evans system, the son of Mr. Ball is now the millwright. Oh, so nice. you see that generation yeah, yeah, yeah. just passing it on. So, uh, But I, I, I've been in a lot of mills in Europe, and everyone's a little different. And I'll never forget the phrase. Uh, Derek had a bunch of us in mills in Norfolk, England, and at the end of the day, we were at dinner, and he said, uh, the same man built those three mills that you saw today. And so he could read the building. Mm -hmm. And so he says, I get to know the man who built the machine, even though he's been gone for 200 years, because I see how he handled timbers and how he built Mm -hmm. things. And so when you're with somebody like that, and you see the mill in that way, it starts to deepen your knowledge. And you know, I could never thank him enough for what I've learned. He wouldn't accept a thank you. Yeah. But without him, I wouldn't be here really doing this sort of work. I'd do something in history, but I'm very thankful for that encounter back in the early 90s. Yeah. Now, why did, uh, or when, uh, you mentioned the date, but we'll just go over it again. When and, and why did Washington construct the mill at Mount Vernon, or order constructed the mill at Mount Vernon? Yeah, to back up just a little bit, yeah. he inherited a mill. Yeah. Okay. And, and initially, I had thought that it was one that he and his father built. But in recent research, it turns out that they bought a mill up on Doge Creek, Doge Farm here at Mount Vernon, with a 
over 100 acres. And so it was really to feed the plantation. Mm-hmm. But Washington builds is a merchant mill. So he's building that because he's abandoning tobacco as the cash mm-hmm. crop here. His land's really exhausted from growing tobacco. His, his crop is not that good in quality or yield. So he's going to slide into debt. And he knew that the flower markets were there and very viable. So he decided, I'm going to switch to grains, wheat being the key grain to export flour. And that led to the building of that mill in 1770, opened in 1771. Then I guess he gets a little distracted starting about a few years later. (laughs) Things Uh, changed for him, yeah. Yeah. Very quickly in the early 1770s. Yeah. 1775, 1783, he's got to take a little break from commercial. Uh, And then the presidency. Well, I guess that then is a good segue to he does the presidency. Uh, continues to be interested in mills while he's in the presidency, right? Yeah, it became a, one of the key um, revenue streams for Mount Vernon. It was export flour. And so Washington's always looking for innovations, as, as you know. Mm-hmm. And you can read that in the record in his studies of various agricultural endeavors. But in 1790, the patent office was formed. And prior to that, if you applied for a patent for any invention, you'd have to apply at the various state legislatures, and you would get a certain number of years it really wasn't in great favor to the mm-hmm. inventor at that time. So in 1790, a man named Oliver Evans, who was from Delaware, had patented the automated milling system. He's the man who invented the bucket elevator that transports grain through the mill automatically, basically lifting it from lower floors to upper mm-hmm. floors. And he invented a couple other devices and mills, and he patented that. And George Washington, as president, had to sign approved patents. So it came across his desk. And he signed it, and he sent it down to Thomas Jefferson for his signature. And then he had Tobias Lear, his secretary, contact Oliver Evans in Philadelphia. Evans had a huge shop called the Mars Works. He was very experimental in castings of metal gears even in the early part of the 1800s. Quite an ingenious man. But he basically uh, said that, you know, we the president wants you to come to Mount mm-hmm. Vernon and install this new system in his mill. And... Um, of course, people might say that seems like insider trading. You know, Washington gets in at the beginning. It's a public patent. But uh, he paid the fee, yeah. the licensing fee. So it was $50 mm-hmm. per set of stones, millstones, that would run on the new system. Evans couldn't come, but he sent his two brothers to Mount Vernon, who were millwrights. Mm-hmm. And along with the, uh, the younger Mr. Ball, mm-hmm. they retrofitted Washington's mill with the elevators and the, and the flour cooler, which was called the Hopper Boy. And it basically connected all the devices into the mill into one continuous system so that the grain would flow through the process automatically. Greatly improved the efficiency of mills and, one could argue, the quality of flour. And Evans received the third U.S. patent ever given for the automated milling system. And how many many, uh, mills had he installed the system in prior to Washington? My little bit of research I've done on it, you know, this is early for Evans Mm because I think he invents the bucket elevator in 1787. So we're talking about three years after that he patents yeah. it, and then Washington, 1791, gets this. I, I think there probably at max were 20 mills maybe in the country that had it at that time. It, it becomes more prolific. Yeah, so yeah, in yeah. 1795, Evans writes a book called The Young Millwright and Miller's Guide, which is all about the theorem of mills and hydraulic power, how to build a mill, about his system, et cetera. That went through 15 printings by 1860. So he's certainly well-known in the milling yeah. world. But that early period, you know, Washington and a handful of other people realized early on this is this is an incredible device and we need to upgrade. And I think that's really the story here is Washington would apply new innovation if he knew it would answer yeah. what he needed answered. Yeah. No, I just I always love that story just because of the, uh, you know, of, of Washington, like looking – I just picture him looking over 
the patent at his desk and, and immediately be like, I, I gotta order one of these. Well, I also have a theory. I haven't been able to prove it completely about this, but I do believe there's a decent chance that Washington may have seen an Evans system mill running in the Brandywine Valley mm. on his trip to the northern states because one of the millers up there, they were Quakers, and mm-hmm. so they were pacifists. And uh, uh, these two families ended up marrying together, the Tattnall and Lees, but they were big milling merchants. And, I, and he went up there, and I know he thanked Mr. Lee, I believe, for his grinding for the Continental Army. Mm. And I, I don't know if the dates all line up. I'm yeah. still digging. But it's, it's likely that he may have seen one in operation. And there was another one working here already in this region. Just south of here, there's a village called Occoquan. Mm-hmm. And the mill there had converted to the Evans system. And so mm-hmm. actually Washington's millwright, Mr. Ball, had been to that one. It, yeah. And in the Lear letter, it says, uh, our man has been to the mill at Occoquan's and, and believes he can accomplish the work. Nice. So it's interesting. So it's, as you know, you do a lot of research. It's nice when you find these dovetail things yeah. coming together and you can start to see more of the picture. Yeah. Now, does Washington installing the Oliver Evans system lead to a surplus of wheat, which is then going to bring us to our next pro- topic? Not really. No, okay. no. no. The, the, the wheat is its own commodity. Um, and there are good and bad years, just like with corn. Yeah, yeah. You know, being a farmer, he's a weather watcher, and you can mm-hmm. see that in the records, how he's always marketing weather, commenting on weather. So that remains a staple mm-hmm. in an export, and some's used in-house for foodstuffs. But the, the next business really can stand on its own, but the mill is needed. The mill is needed for yeah. it. And, of course, you're talking about the whiskey distillery. Yeah. Let's, let's get on to the, the, what everyone's probably really excited for. And if you haven't, now's the time to pour your George Washington rye whiskey out. Uh, <laughs> and, and every time we say the word... I don't know, just pick something if you want to play along with this as a drinking game. Um, <laughs> whiskey or rye. Yeah. Uh, so why does Washington get involved in the whiskey trade? The bottom line answer to that is profit. Yeah. But there's a key person that's involved in that, and you know, you know the story pretty well, I think, is that Washington re- is returning from being president. Um, you know, having put down the whiskey rebellion, <laughs> which is an irony, but yeah. that's a question we get a lot on site, is was yeah. Washington trying to put him competitors out of business? answer is no. He never knew he would be a distiller or have mm-hmm. a distillery. So that all occurs between 1791 when the, the tax is passed to 1794, the peak of the rebellion. So we're talking about 1797. Yeah. And he, he hires a man named James Anderson. And Anderson is of Scottish descent, a Scottish immigrant, came to America, um, I believe, in 1790 or 91. He worked near Fredericksburg, Virginia, for another landowner, actually built a distillery there. And he mentions in his, his resume letter to Washington, basically, that the man there didn't have enough land really to sustain, sustain mm-hmm. the distilling. It takes a lot of grain to make whiskey. So he's the one who pitches the idea to George Washington to, to get into the whiskey trade. And initially, Washington's hesitant. And there's a few reasons for that. I think the first reason is you think of the span of his last 20 years of his life. It's been pretty busy. Yeah. I think he's seeing retirement finally, mm-hmm. and I don't think he thought, well, I'll get back to Mount Vernon and I'll, I'll build another commercial business. I think secondly, he uh, didn't know a lot about the business side of whiskey. You know, he consumed alcohol throughout his life. He loved porter beer. He loved uh, Madeira wine. He drank whiskey, we know, mm-hmm. on one written occasion. I'm sure he consumed it more than once. And the well, third, whiskey helped get him elected. His that's first true. Time that in the Virginia true. House of Burgesses. He yeah, and first rum. time. He, yeah, first time he first time he runs for those of you listening that don't know the story. First time he runs for elected office, he does not win. Uh, second time he runs for elected office, he offers everybody that'll vote for him some liquor, and lo and behold, he he got the votes. So yeah, I think they called it treating. Yeah, yeah. It's, 
So he treated, he learned yeah. and then treated the second time around, was successful. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to, to read the list of what he bought yeah. at that election time. Um, so for Washington, the, the third worry, I think, was that uh, if I build a distillery, what type of people might be attracted to my farm? Yeah. And there's that wonderful letter where he writes a friend and he says, I have many idlers at my mill. <laughs> and, and mills are meeting places. You know, people come to drop grain off. They talk to the miller. But he, he felt like it might cause yeah. problems. So, But then he realized the profit could be there. So they started small uh, using two stills. And they set them up in the cooperage, which was right next to the grist mill. The cooper made all the barrels for the flour mill, export flour. And again, it's a typical Washington move, I think. Let's see if this man can do what he says he can do. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he knew human nature, and he started on a small scale, and it proved successful that first year. I think they made 600 gallons, sold it at a profit, which was right in Alexandria, Virginia, yeah. you know, just a few miles from Mount Vernon. And that led to the construction of the much larger distillery. Um, the, the amazing thing about the project, when I first came here, they were, they were just finishing the building in January 2007, and uh, so I got delved into the research and talked to the people that were behind the project. You learned that they even, at the time they started it, didn't realize how large it was. Mm-hmm. They knew he had a pretty good building there, but they looked at the records and realized in 1798 it produced almost, well, 4,500 gallons of whiskey. 1799, almost 11,000 gallons. And that's huge even by some craft distilleries today to think about that many gallons being produced. So that story really took off, you know, after I came here. I was fortunate to get in on the ground floor. I knew a little bit about whiskey. I understood basic still operation, mm-hmm. but I didn't know anything about real production. And that first year, we made one barrel, and uh, it's been carried on ever since to where we're, you know, making a lot more and a lot better whiskey. But the key thing for Washington was this was a profit center now. Unaged whiskey was the way they did it. They didn't yeah. age it. So the nice thing for George Washington is unlike tobacco or flour, he's got a local commodity, local market, and money comes right back. Yeah. So it's really one of those few things he ever had besides maybe work at the blacksmith shop that was done or uh, you know, a couple other internal industries that made money. This was a real moneymaker. Yeah, well, I'm glad you, you, you already brought up the, the difference in the whiskey because that's where I was kind of wanting to go next because uh, – Washington's the whiskey that Washington's going to have made at Mount Vernon is uh, is a little different than what a lot of us are used to drinking. So could you sort of talk through um, and you know, if, yeah. Well, as if you've ever been to any distillery and taken a tour, all distillate comes off a still. It's clear. It looks like mm-hmm. water. And in the 18th century in America, they did not barrel age whiskey. It did not go in a charred oak barrel for a period of time where it would take on color, mm-hmm. amber color and flavor. The market bore the whiskey as it was. People drank it right away. And so um, for Washington, he, he made what today they call a white dog. It was an unaged whiskey. People sometimes say, oh, it's moonshine. It's not moonshine mm-hmm. for, for two reasons. Moonshine often has a big sugar component. A moonshiner might ferment a bunch of sh- real sugar and add a little grain as a flavor uh, this is all grain. This is a whiskey made mm-hmm. on the grain base, but it's just not aged. Now, in the early 1800s, depending on who you read and stories you hear, somewhere between 1813 and 1820-ish, they start to barrel-age whiskey. And one of the stories you'll hear in Kentucky is they would ship a lot of whiskey down to New Orleans. And so uh, these are all anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the one you often hear is that, well, somebody was making whiskey and he ran out of barrels. And so he added some barrels that had previously had fish in them. And he thought, well, I can't put the whiskey in there. 
but I'll just burn out the inside of that barrel and then I'll put the whiskey in. Then by the time it makes the journey to New Orleans, it's sat on the loading dock a little while perhaps mm-hmm. by the boat. People open it up and it's amber, more amber in color and it tastes different. And on the barrel it said Bourbon County, Kentucky. Now that's one of the stories. Now, so was whiskey not being barrel aged at all in Europe at this point? Well, not not certain spirits were. Okay. They were the they were doing brandies, mm-hmm. and, and so that was known. Uh, my theory is really the market was different for wealthy people. Yeah. There was aged spirit to be had, but for the common market, it just yeah. wasn't done. I think that's one of the delineations because Washington at one time gets a gift of aged spirit that was over twenty years old. And you should see the letter of thanks he writes to the guy. <laughs> he realizes the value of yeah, what he yeah, just yeah. got. But in the regular market, people just aren't going to wait. And some of it's about supply. I think part of it was, too, in the 18-teens, when they had enough supply of spirit in the market, people could afford to hold barrels back. Yeah. But the flip side of that is, and I heard this from Michael Veach, who's a, a great guy and a bourbon historian. He worked at Filson uh, out there in Kentucky and, and very knowledgeable and writes on whiskey all the time. And Michael said that, you know, he thinks the name bourbon may derive from people drank this commodity coming from Kentucky down on Bourbon Street. Mm. And so one of his thoughts is that we, we want the whiskey that's sold on Bourbon Street. We'll never know. It's mm-hmm. one of those conundrums of history. You'll never know for sure. But the main point is it wasn't until the 18-teens, then the American market, they started to burn yeah. or char cask and put spirit in it for aging. Yeah. Now, um, just to back up for, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners already know this, but just for those of them that might be a little confused um, about the economic side of all of this, um, and it's something that we ourselves here at Mount Vernon have had to sort of think through, is what are the economic ramifications of aging? Well, and what, why, you know, when yeah. you're talking about the, like, the market yeah. portion, like where, 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 it, how does this work on the economic side? Well, from Washington, well, let's back away from Washington. Yeah. Just generally speaking, any market can get flooded with a lot of commodity. I think that may be one factor why they said, well, I can hold some barrels back, and then they notice this change in flavor and color. Mm-hmm. But also, with an aged spirit, you can charge more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's another aspect. So, but, but for the distiller who's starting out in any era, you, you have to wait then for a return. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what that, I was doing, right? Yeah, you that's can, the hard You can part. charge more because it tastes better. Maybe. But the other reason you have to charge more is because you have to hold it. You have to hold it. Um, Three years, five years, sometimes longer. So uh, for a distiller back then, you know, they wouldn't have done that. But at a certain point in time, it became economically feasible for certain producers to say, well, the market's changing a bit. I can hold these barrels. But if you're extended having built a distillery, you're extended on your capital end, Mm -hmm. and then there's no inflow of cash, it's problematic. So a lot of... uh, a lot of small distillers today, that's why you see a lot of gin and vodka on the market, because they need cash flow product. Yeah. And then they wait for their whiskey to age. And there's a storage issue too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, to put up a bunch of barrels like that for a period of years, I mean, some of these warehouses in Kentucky hold 50,000 barrels. It's mind-boggling. So you can imagine a small landowner trying to set back barrels back then. You know, it was a difficult yeah. thing to think about just in sheer storage space. Now, with, without getting into any specifics, so people aren't rooting around the estate, um, you know, how many, what have we sort of broken down for how many barrels to, to hold back and, and what sort of stuff if we kind of get near the end of the show here? What was, is there anything interesting that folks should be looking for in the future that we're going to be coming out with? Yeah, we've come a long way since 2007. And so we, we always age some, but now we've got 91 barrels aging. And some of it's whiskey, some of it's apple brandy, some of it's peach brandy, 
some of its rum. Mm -hmm. We made a rum rum project earlier this year. So, and we're going from small barrels to bigger barrels so we can age it longer. So down the road, you're going to see some more premium George Washington whiskey, the rye whiskey. The other big news is this November, we're going to make bourbon for the first time. Mm. So that'll all be barrel aged minimum four years. So we're kind of hitting a stride here as a distillery. You know, we're still keen on education and what we do day to day. But I think our spirits are getting a little more well-known in the industry, and so we want to make them as premium and as good as we can. So we're going to have some older spirits coming out down the road. Nice. I look forward to those. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, maybe in the future we'll have to uh, have an episode where we, we just do like a tasting and a flight maybe. I don't That'd really know good. why that would work for a podcast. But well, we'll just have we'll enough, just have uh, to, clinking of glasses and yeah, things of that nature. Yeah, we'll just have to trust us for, uh, for, for how good the colors look. Well, if uh, our dialogue deteriorates yeah. over the time, we, we know there might be an issue. But uh, I think being in the distillery, is, as you said about the mill earlier, the atmosphere in there is incredible. Yeah. If you've never toured it. These buildings are open through the end of October. Yeah, uh, We open back up in April for tours, but they're unique experiences. And stepping into that room, as you have, it does take you back to the time when Washington you know, had his stills running. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And uh, I'm, I, we're, we're going to chat again because I, I have a feeling the public and our listener base loves loves alcohol yeah. and uh, would, like, would like to hear more about it. At well, there's point. more angles to touch on, I yeah. think. Yeah. So thanks, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.